0: Welcome into another edition of Inside the Pile on the Podcast. This is our first full length one uh, since the Super Bowl has finished, and so we do have. Uh, A pretty full 40-minute show for you today. We're going to be joined by Brandon Thorne in a little bit from thefootballeducator.com to talk about the game and specifically uh, what the Broncos were able to do uh, to really negate anything that Carolina could do on offense there. We're also going to be talking about draft quarterbacks coming up in a little bit. We're going to be talking about an ITP glossary term, the kill call, as well as uh the effect of some early retirements uh in the NFL and whether this is gonna be something uh that continues to be a trend over the next couple of years. Before we go any further though, have to welcome in Mark Schofield here.
1: Mark, how are you? I'm doing well, my friend. How are you this fine Tuesday? I
0: am I am outstanding. And uh you know I think it's uh you know safe to say that having uh lived down our end of the uh, the unfortunate bet that we had to pay off last Friday with uh, neither Taylor Swift nor Adele coming through and uh, paying any attention to us on Twitter. I think it's safe to say we won't be doing that again anytime soon.
1: Well, I, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, maybe we will pick two different artists or perhaps a couple of different groups, maybe, you know, increase the chances we get a retreat from somebody. I mean, I don't know much about one direction, but they seem pretty active on Twitter. They got a lot of followers. Maybe we can go down that road.
0: Yeah, that's that's not a bad one to consider. So maybe
1: we uh we
0: do a little bit of soul searching in the off season, figure out a new strategy and see where we go from here.
1: Look, that's what the offseason is about for thirty-one NFL teams. It's what it's about for a lot of college football programs that didn't win a national championship. So why should we be any different?
0: That's true. It's it's all about getting yourself better every day, every year, just incremental progress. We're going to do the same thing. Let's start, though, with a guy uh, who I had talked an awful lot about last week. Uh, We didn't have a chance to talk about him on our podcast yesterday, uh, and that's Britton Colquitt, the punter for the Denver Broncos. And I have a case to make here. Go for it. Britton Colquitt should have been the Super Bowl MVP.
1: That's a hot take, my friend. Talk to me. That's a hot take.
0: And and I'm going to talk to you about why I think this is the case here. Okay, This is a game that, no doubt about it, was incredibly uh, dependent on special teams really for a lot of the momentum here and it was a game in which both teams showed an inability to move the ball consistently and we saw in a couple different places that we saw points that were scored directly because of either miscues or great plays on special teams now with Colquitt here what he was able to do was, I think, nothing short of outstanding for the Broncos. Okay, Britton Colquitt. If you go and look at his stats over the course of this year, and there's a metric that I use called target disted punted or target distance punted rather, uh, that essentially measures how well a punter is able to cover distances at various uh, different field positions in open field situations during the year, he averaged about 95% of the target distance he was trying to attempt, about 46 yards on average. Okay, During this game, and he had seven open field punts over the course of this game, averaged over 48 yards a kick, 101% of the target distance punted. So, showed a significant improvement in what he was able to do over the rest of the year in these same situations. Beyond that, You talk about where he was putting the ball in these situations. He's hitting these balls 48 yards and directly out of bounds. 48 yards outside the numbers, to the left, to the right, moving around so that Carolina can't get any type of meaningful return here. He even had one punt where it ended up being called back because of another Denver penalty, where he had had, it was, I believe, a 52-yard kick uh, that was essentially negated, still puts another one, 43-44 yards, right out of bounds there, so there's no return, so you say, well, the kick only went 44 yards, well, but there's no return there, you talk about the net that you're getting off of that, you're picking up all that yardage with no chance for return, and you talk about just you know what he was able to do with that you know Denver was punting in a lot of situations from its own 18 15 10 yard line and he's consistently getting the ball out to a place where you're saying okay instead of having a 50 yard field to work for cam Newton still has to go 65 70 yards here it's not perfect but it was just you know what he was able to do carolina couldn't just go 20 yards and kick a field goal they didn't have that option to them in a lot of situations. And you talk about this game, if there's another field goal or two here, it's a very different ball game heading into the fourth quarter.
1: Now is the issue here not just the distance, but the directional skills of Colquitt? Because if I remember right, Gin didn't have a big return in this game or anything close to it.
0: No and, and and this is where Colquitt's true strength I think lies is in his directional ability is he's able to go both to the left of the field and the right of the field with with no problem at all here. and I think that it really it really negated any chance that Ginn had uh, to pick up a big return. You go and look at the return stats, for this game, and you say, okay, what was Ginn actually able to do here? He had three punt returns, averaging two-thirds of a yard. Mm. I mean, that's you're talking about a guy who really, you know, and look, Ginn, for all of his flaws, he still has some ability in in the return game. He's better on kickoffs, I think, than on punt returns, just because he doesn't quite have the lateral agility, but you're talking about, you know, a, a situation where to only get two return yards in this game... I mean, that's, you, you pretty much took the, the return game out completely, and, and I think it you know, goes unnoticed a lot. And I finally saw during, during the game on, on Sunday that there was a little bit more Twitter talk about the job that Colquitt was doing just because it stood out so much. And, and when you get you know, average fans talking about a punter, you know something kind of special is going on there. And it's, you know, Colquitt, I think, just had an absolutely phenomenal game here. The directional ability, the, the way that he controlled the return game of Carolina by his ball placement and where he was where he was putting the ball on the field was just absolutely outstanding here. He had one, you know, the one kick that he had that was uh, shorter than 44 yards. It was, you know, pretty much at the end of the game where it didn't really matter at that point. And you know, I think he unleashed, it was, I say unleashed, he he put out a 28-yarder, I think it was, Uh, That didn't really matter then, but you know he had pretty much already done his job to that
1: point, right? And on that kick in particular, I mean Carolina went all up, you know, rushed eleven to try to block the punt because it was a late game and they needed to. So he was just you know dropping and kicking and just needed to get it off, right?
0: Exactly. It's look, just get the ball away here, and I think what I saw from Colquitt, you know, it was it was really something special there, and I would make the the argument, and I'll get laughed at to till the cows come home. I have no doubt about it, but with how close this game was and with how tightly contested it was, you're talking, if if you talk about, you know, 15, 20 yards of field position in a different direction here, could have been a very different game. And I would I would make the argument that on that field, if you're not talking about Colquitt as the MVP, and look, you and I both know a punter will never win the Super Bowl MVP, so I, I get that I'm being uh, a little bit aggressive on that, but, you can absolutely make the point that if you're looking at the players on Denver, I probably put him in terms of the value to that team. He's third after uh, Demarcus Ware and Von Miller.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair way to look at it. I mean, again, this came down to a defensive and special teams battle, and Colgate played his bigger role, if not the biggest role, in the special teams element of this. Um, obviously, Carolina had sort of the you know sort of brain meltdown on the one big punt return from Denver, but. In terms of value added to this victory, you'd have to put Vaughn Miller number one. I mean, the strip sack touchdown was a huge play in this game. You have to. Even i concede that. DeMarcus Ware, the two of them bringing pressure off the edge. I mean, we talked about it in the Quick Hicks podcast. What that did to Cam Newton, his ability to try to make throws or his inability to complete throws down the field. I mean, when they brought pressure, 31% completion rate or something like that. Yeah. You know, 10 overthrows, which is tied for the most in NFL history, in Super Bowl history. So. You got to have those guys one, two, but I think you've made a very strong case as to why Denver's punter was the third most important player at Denver that night. And, and the way I look
0: at it, when you're talking about your punt return unit, that's the first, that's really the first down of your offensive possession. And for right. Carolina to only pick up two yards in the return game all, all day, you know, that, that really says something about what Denver was able to do. And a ton of credit, by the way, to the Denver coverage unit as well. Right. Did right. did a phenomenal job there. So Colquitt, no doubt, had help, but I thought what he did there was was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I'm partly tooting my own horn just because I was talking him up all last week as some guy as someone who could make a difference, and and I think he really really did here. But toot away, man,
1: that's what we do here. <sighs>
0: that's what we got to do. We we really well, need more of it. Let's let's get you tooting a little bit on uh, draft quarterbacks. How about oh that? Where what what are we talking today in terms of are we have we built the Schofield big board for quarterbacks yet or do we want to get a little bit more into uh just some specific prospects
1: The pros, the process for the Schofield quarterback board is still underway. I think you know, I could safely say that there is a top 4 and I don't think it's any real surprise. Um it's kind of the top 4 that people seem to be settling on and people can have them in different orders. I have an order in mind that I haven't finalized yet because Again, after I get through and do all my film work, four or five games on each of these guys, I'm going to go combine pro days and then back into the film to sort of finalize since I don't anticipate a lot of movement, you know, not a lot of wild movement, but there might be slight tinkering, you know, between seven and eight or two and three or something like that.
0: Now, when, when we start to dig into some of the prospects that you've been looking at recently, who have been
1: guys uh, that you've been focusing on the last couple of weeks? Well, I did all of the senior bowl quarterbacks before he we went down to Alabama because I wanted to have some sort of at least some base knowledge. I didn't really get fully into Jeff Driscoll or Brandon Allen, but I've got them under my belt now. The guys that I've been looking at in the past couple of weeks are two guys that, and I've said this before to other people, Everybody loves the battle for QB1. Everybody's talking about who's QB1. I'm really more interested in QB5 because everybody has that group of four. They're kind of looking at Jared Goff, Carson Wentz, Paxton Lynch, and Connor Cook as you know, kind of the top four quarterbacks. Maybe the guys that go in the first round if four quarterbacks go in the first round. That next tier is more fascinating to me right now because there are some guys in that next little group that I think – have some great talent, some great traits, some great tools, and if they get to the right landing spot in the right situation, they could really kind of flourish, perhaps even have better careers than some of those guys in the top four, depending on where they land up. I mean, we've seen quarterbacks crash and burn now when they're drafted by Cleveland. I mean, we've got another horrible case with this Johnny Manziel situation, which both on the field and off the field is on the field, it's a bad situation because he hasn't panned out, but off the field, it's pretty horrific what we're seeing with this affidavit that just came out. It's a really bad situation, and he needs help, and his ex-girlfriend now, people need to help, make sure that she's taken care of because that's a very bad situation.
0: Yeah, and... and Strip... Oh, you know, go ahead. And, and I, I want to just circle back and dig into one of the things that you were talking about there because you're, you're getting into this idea that you're looking more kind of at that QB5, QB6, and, and I have a question On that, actually, is, you know, is there a viable argument to be made that for teams that are drafting quarterbacks, that you may actually find better value in that QB five to eight range drafting, you know, kind of in that second, third, fourth round where look, you may not always hit on a guy, but if you get a guy who can be the guy in that round based on that entry level contract being so much cheaper than at the top of the first round, you can make the argument there that that can be you know really really important to your success there look no further than what Russell Wilson was able to do out in Seattle on his rookie deal
1: right and you know it gets us back to one of those scouting rules that you know Russell Wilson's the exception not the rule yep. i mean you'd like to find the exceptions but if your draft strategy is trying to find exceptions with all these picks you're going to miss a lot but on a theoretical level i agree with you i mean if you can get Like, say, a team that people think is going to draft a quarterback in the top five picks, Dallas, okay? If you look at what the Dallas Cowboys need, they definitely need their next quarterback. And as a rule of thumb, you'd like to be a year earlier than a year late when you're trying to replace a quarterback because you'd rather have a guy in the system starting to learn things. So mocking a quarterback to Dallas at pick four does make a bit of sense. But – If you can address another position of need for Dallas, like wide receiver, for example, like running back, for example. I know we don't talk a lot about running backs in the first round, but there are some talented guys. Treadwell, for example, the Ole Miss wide receiver, he might be a good pick for them. So you can get a guy locked up for five years, hit on that pick, and then you get somebody like a Christian Hackenberg or a Dak Prescott or a Cardale Jones – When you know that when you draft a quarterback at Dallas, it's gonna be somebody that's gonna sit for a year or two because of Tony Romo's status unless he gets hurt again, maybe that does make more sense for Dallas. But that's a long way of saying we have big boards, we have picks that I could, you know, I can structure a big board in a vacuum and say this is why I prefer from a tweet based perspective this quarterback over that quarterback. But then you've got 32 different teams that have different needs and different boards. So it's gonna be wildly different from what I put together and what actually happens. And a prime example is going to be you're going to see guys get drafted earlier than expected on day two that nobody's going to expect to see happen. The timeline is going to blow up and say, why did this guy get picked? But it just takes one team, one coach to like a guy and ban on the table in the wall room, and they get picked.
0: Yeah, and, and I, was, I was probably – not not a little, but I was probably very out of line actually going down the uh, the Russell Wilson route because, as he said, you know he's an exception. But even just looking at a guy like Derek Carr, who was taken at the top of the second round instead of the top of the first, you know maybe you look and try to build some value in a way like that, or a guy like Drew Brees, who was taken at the start of the second back when we had uh, only thirty teams, not the current thirty-two. Right. Maybe those are the types of guys. Uh, that you look into there, but I do want to go over to our first guest. He's actually our only guest of the day. Brandon Thorne from the thefootballeducator.com joins us. You can also follow him on Twitter at Veteran Scout. And Brandon, is the party still going out in Colorado right now?
2: <laughs> um, well, yeah, I think so. Uh, the parade today um, in downtown Denver. So I think my dad's actually going to go down there with some of my family and you know, kind of partake in activities down there. Yeah, man, I mean, you know, everybody has their Bronco gear on, including me, and, you know, it's just it's awesome. It's great.
0: Well, it it certainly was, I think, uh, a performance that, you know, from a defensive perspective, you look at the line play in the front seven that you saw from Denver, and you just had to come away impressed with just how well that unit worked together. It seemed like, and and I, in private conversations with uh, Mark and some other guys, you know, I, I said it was—it was like watching the Blue Angels, almost how in sync they were. It seemed.
2: Yeah, that's that's a good um, analogy there. Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody pays attention to Von Miller and Demarcus Ware, and you know, rightfully so. They're they're outstanding, and they play off each other really well. And Von Miller is, you know, I think he just kind of solidified himself as the best edge rusher in the NFL, and um, he was outstanding, but. You know, on Twitter yesterday, I did a bunch of video highlights, and I, I really wanted to focus and bring some attention to the interior, you know, particularly Derek Wolf, Malik Jackson, and even Sylvester Williams. Those guys kind of allow DeMarcus Ware and Vaughn Miller to get into the third and long situations, um, clogging the running lane, uh, allowing the linebackers to, to flow off, you know, off the top and um, run sideline to sideline. So I really think those three are kind of the unsung heroes of the defense, and um, you know, it's going to be interesting moving forward to see uh, how many of those guys we can keep.
0: Brennan, was it was it Malik Jackson that had that ridiculous spin move right up the A-gap uh, during the uh, during the game on Sunday?
2: Yeah, he did. Um, I forgot who it was against, it was against actually. But he, him and Derek Wolf, I mean, the interior three of the Panthers' offensive line are outstanding. I mean, Ryan Khalil, Trey Turner, and Andrew Noel. Noel actually got hurt, and he had their be replaced but um but those three all all year were great and Malik Jackson and Derek Wolf just I mean they dominated those guys um also as well as the tackles when they were blocking down on power and stuff and they had to you know Michael Orr and Mike Remmers tried to or had to you know try to block Malik Jackson and Derek Wolf, you know when they were in you know three techniques blocking down on them and it just didn't work out well I mean they controlled the line of scrimmage um, they, they did two gap techniques, um, primarily, you know, they're strong enough to the point of attack to do that and kind of control everything and read and react and, you know, allow the linebackers, like I said, to kind of make plays. So, I mean, yeah, those guys, and then Sylvester Williams at the nose tackle position. I mean, th- there's just so much, uh, I'm really, you know, Elway drafted all those guys and, um, you know, he had to be happy to see all three of his draft picks play that well.
1: Brandon, cool. um, going back to Vaughn Miller for a second, one of the things you did yesterday on Twitter was highlighting his ability as an edge rusher, focusing on his ability to sort of bend around the edge, stay on balance, fight off blocks, yeah. and still work to the quarterback. Can you kind of put into words why Miller is able to excel in that area and what traits allow him to excel in that area?
2: Yeah, I think it starts you know, with his burst off the line of scrimmage um, as well as film study as we saw. You know, as you guys highlighted last week, you know, with Brian Stork and kind of things that he was doing to kick him off. But, you know, you know, picking up on things like that and then the burst, just the sheer explosiveness, fast twitch muscle fiber that Vaughn Miller possesses is just, you know, is second to none. So that kind of gets things going and it stresses offensive linemen pass sets, you know, instantly. So, you know, the Panthers, though, they were vertical setting primarily the whole game to kind of Um, you know take the you know the advantageous angle. they didn't have to set diagonally to try to cut off Von Miller they tried to set just straight back um, which kind of you know gives them the the, the upper hand and the angle but the thing that makes Von Miller so special is he can convert speed to power and um, you know that that kind of just throws a monkey wrench in any kind of scheme that you try to implement against him um you know if you vertical set and try to cut him off early he'll just run right through you uh if you try to set it at a 45 he's just going to run by you um and just the way that i mean the way that he contorts his body prior to contact and it's almost like he's a running back you know just the way he kind of jukes offensive linemen real subtly and it gets him off balance and then he can just explode from there and turn it on again and then just blow right by him and, you know, also Ben, while, you know, contacted around the edge, he could just get so low. And, you know, he, he doesn't leave a lot of surface for the offensive linemen to block. And um, he could just finish and close on the quarterback. I mean, he's a total package. And, you know, he, he even dropped back in coverage and stuff. He, you know, uh, I saw somebody highlight on Twitter, and he, you know, he was out in the slot on a, I think it was a tight end, or maybe even a receiver, it might have been Katria, I can't remember. But, you know, he's covering double moves down the field. I mean, he's, you know, he's the premier linebacker in the league, in my opinion, and, you know, he's just outstanding and deservedly won the MVP.
0: What did you see, Brandon, from a a scheme perspective here? There was a lot of talk before this game about how the Broncos would try to contain Cam Newton and keep him inside the pocket. What did you see in terms of the, the scheme by Wade Phillips here? It seemed to me, and this is more from an execution standpoint, it seemed to me that Carolina, or rather Denver, did just a, a great job of collapsing the pocket uniformly on Newton and just giving him no opportunities. But what did you see in terms of how Wade Phillips drew this one up?
2: Yeah, well, you know I think they blitzed the second most in Super Bowl history, um, so they certainly brought plenty of extra pressure um, from from everywhere. They did a lot of green dog blitzes. Um, so you know Carolina likes to match protect and leave running backs in, tight ends in, the block, and whenever they did that um Denver would bring Brandon Marshall or Danny Turnathan on a late blitz um, and that kind of funneled you know Cam Newton inside um, but Wade Phillips said, said it himself that you know when you have great players you just let them play Um and you trust that they're going to make the right decision so they didn't really approach the game trying to contain Cam Newton they really wanted to attack Cam Newton and they you know Wade Phillips being they he he gave Ware and Miller the freedom to do so, and, and they did an outstanding job. But, you know, when the offensive tackle is vertical set like that, it's up to the interior three offensive linemen to hold the line of scrimmage and not give up penetration, or else that's just going to destroy the pocket. And, you know, it goes back to it was just a full-team effort. I mean, the interior defensive line pushed the pocket, and then Cam Newton with the tackles right, basically um, lateral to him, he didn't have anywhere to go. So it was just an outstanding, you know, um, scheme that Wade Phillips implemented. And then the execution, like you said, was great. I mean, um, we blitzed a ton, and we played a lot of cover one man coverage. Um, And, you know, I think we all knew that um, if Cam Newton was pressured and Denver's corners had to cover the receivers, that we'd probably win that matchup. They don't really have, you know, too many threats on the outside. And, uh, you know, clearly Cam Newton got rattled. I think. Um, you know, once Vaughn Miller had that sack and you know, that strip sack um near the end zone, I think that kind of uh rattled Cam and he saw him sailing balls and um yeah, I mean it, it was just a, a well executed game plan and you know, just, just the defensive roster is so deep and outstanding all the way around and uh you know, I think um Carolina's lack of weapons really caught up to him in that game.
1: Now, Brandon, the Super Bowl, it's behind us. Obviously, we're starting to get into draft season. I wanted to ask you about a piece you wrote for the football educator. You were down in Mobile with us. You got a chance to go into the weigh-in. And you wrote a great article that I'd highly recommended people about the weigh-in process and why it is silly to kind of stand there and yeah. look at young men, kind of in their underwear and get a height, weight measurement and stuff on them. But you talked about sort of the physical attributes and almost the body structure of some of these guys and why that's important. Can you talk a little bit just about how, you know, how a person's designed and put together is important when you're evaluating football players?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, the way I put it in the article for me, the way I look at it is, you know, we're evaluating human beings and the complex movement that they're doing in uh you know, what I call multi-plane surfaces. So they're just basically, they're moving in a ton of different angles, um, you know, and then throw in, you know, the car crash level collisions that they have to experience, you know, the majority of positions. And, you know, the way that the body is going to handle those movements and those collisions is really important. And the way that it's structured and um, the way that players take care of their body is, is huge, you know. I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a, a predictor of injury, um and also performance so you know for, you know like in the way and i'm I'm looking at you know i just want to see functionality you know i don't need to necessarily see if they're ripped or you know or if they have some extra fat on them because there's plenty of guys who you know if you're just judging on kind of you know ripped or flabby sort of speak um you know you're gonna miss a lot you know they could be very functional and, and not look that great i think we've seen that you know, time and time again in the NFL where guys just don't look that great on the field, they move exceptionally well. So th- there's different things you can look at. Um, you know, I, I'm, I start from the ground up. You know, I look at their, you know, their feet, their ankles, their knees, their hips, and then their shoulders. And that's, you know, that's kind of the baseline that you start at. You want to see things in line. Um, you know, I, I touched on uh, Kyle Murphy, the offensive tackle from Stanford, you know, when he walks across the stage. You know, he was kind of tilted forward. And it, it's a really common thing. It's called an anterior pelvic tilt. So, anterior meaning forward. Um, and basically, your pelvis is just tilted forward. And that's an indicator of weak uh, back muscles because you're tilted forward all the time. So, your back isn't engaged. So, it naturally over time becomes weak. Um, and also, when you're tilted like that in the front, your quads become tight and then your hamstrings become weak. And, you know, those are just things that if this guy's walking like that across the stage, chances are that's just the way he walks everywhere. So, you know, that's when you have to actually interview the guy and talk to him and and put him through um, certain tests, you know, flexibility-type tests and see if it really affects him. So, you know, I'm not, you know, for instance, I was writing a scouting report on Kyle Murphy. I'm not going to really, like, sting him too hard for that or anything, but I'm just going to keep in mind that he has that. And, you know, if I was privy to be, being able to push him through certain, you know, flexibility tests, then I could see if it would affect him, you know, or if it's correctable. Um, so, you know, just with Kyle Murphy, you know, that's something that, I, you know, I noticed last year, Danny Shelton, when he walked across stage, his knees were collapsed inwards, which is called uh, valgus knees. Um, which is a huge indicator of ACL injuries because your knees are so stressed. And if you move the wrong way, your ACL, that right in the front of your knee, is going to, you know, be a little snap, um, you know, but that also indicates weak muscles, um, overactive muscles, and there's ways to correct these things. And, you know, um, if I was a scout and, you know, I, and, uh, I saw these things, I would definitely want to bring it to the strength and conditioning coach's attention, um if he had hadn't already noticed it. And it's just another piece of the puzzle. You know, Ted uh Sunquist, you know, mentor of mine, he always says it's a thousand piece puzzle, not a ten piece puzzle, you know, and that's just another piece of the puzzle that I think is important and, you know, I think it's uh it could be really beneficial to keep in mind.
0: Brendan that might have been the most interesting five minutes I think we've ever had on the show actually <laughs> that was unbelievable right there we'll have to get you on at some point later just to go through some of those different posture things and what they can be indicative of because I was fascinated by that entire thing right there so outstanding stuff outstanding
2: thanks guys
0: all right well Brandon oh, we'll let you you, me on. yeah we'll let you go and uh, we'll definitely get you back on in the next couple weeks maybe uh as we get to the combine we'll talk about some of the things that you see there how about that
2: that sounds great
0: all right well Brandon Take it easy. Enjoy the uh, the celebration out in Colorado. Brandon Thorne from the FootballEducator You can also follow him on Twitter at Veteran Scout. He posts uh, some some great videos on line play uh, pretty frequently there. And Mark, I'll t- I was fascinated by the uh, you know the, the posture things and what that can mean. I never even think about watching how someone walks, but it's uh, yeah.
1: No, when I first read that article, and again, it's on the Football Educator. I'd strongly recommend people check it out. I mean, he's got anatomy diagrams of what he means when he's talking about you know the different ways that a human body can stand in terms of their knees whether they're bowed outward or inward and you know why you know plays a role and if you think about it you know it does seem silly that you know you've got when the weigh-in went down to the senior Bowl, you got 800 to 900 guys in a room watching a bunch of 20 21 to 22 year old guys walk across the stage in their underwear and it sounds like a silly concept Matt Waldman wrote a great piece on this as well but it's important because you're going to be investing in value both in terms of a draft pick and salary cap room on these players. And if you can see something like Brandon points out that tells you, oh, this is a precursor to his knee ACL injuries and you might lose a player for eight games a season, that's important. And when you talk about – he talked about Von Miller's ability to translate speed to power. Well, if you could see something in a person's physical stature that shows you, okay, well, this is guy that has, you know, this, you know, forward posture that he's going to have weak back muscles and he won't be able to do that. Well, you might think second about, you know, drafting him.
0: Yeah, it it it's just one of those little things, and and I always find that the more that you know, I talk to people that are involved in the game, you, you pick up on these little things that the average person, you know, no one. The average fan doesn't think, oh, well, when I'm watching the combine, I want to see how someone walks. You know, They, they don't think that. They think, okay, I want to see how fast he runs the 40. But you sit there and you say, wow, it's all these little, little pieces, as he said, that just kind of add up to get you the whole picture. And, and that's just another one right there. It really yeah. is. Um, let's, uh, let's do a little glossary talk here. Uh, we have a term that I think came out, uh, I believe, Monday of this week, maybe Tuesday, I'm not sure. One of the last two days. And the term is kill call. And, Mark, you were a quarterback. You can probably explain this better than I can since I never had any responsibilities uh, in terms of telling anyone what to do.
1: What what is this? Well, what it is, and Ted Wynn, who contributes to Inside the Pylon, he put this together after doing some film work for his great Super Bowl preview pieces, which hopefully everybody read. But what a kill call is, it's a situation where an offense gives the quarterback two plays to call in the huddle. You might call... Let's say hypothetically a stretch run to the right or you might call sort of four verticals in the passing game to the left. No, not to the left, but a drop back four verticals passing concept. Okay, So you call both these plays in the huddle. Quarterback gets to the line of scrimmage and he basically has the choice whether to run with the first play called that stretch zone to the right or execute what's called the kill call. He'll literally say kill, kill, kill. He might even wave his arms like an umpire saying safe to give the indication that you're killing the first play that was called in the huddle and you're going to run the second. Some teams have different code words for, for it. They might use a color such as red, 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 or, you know, black, 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 or something to give the indication to the rest of the offense that look, we're not running that first play. I've seen something in the defense that makes me think this play is not going to work going with the example I'm using. say so you've seen, you know, they've dropped down eight defenders in the box and you've got now a strong safety. that's just outside the tight end shaded to the side where you're going to try to run a zone play. Well, with that numbers, you might not want to run the zone, but given eight guys in the box, you might be able to make a play downfield on four verticals. So you kill that, use the kill, kill, kill call, run the second play. Hopefully you're able to like take advantage of what the quarterback sees from the defense.
0: Is this the most common way that a quarterback will audible to a different play, or is that something entirely different that's done more frequently?
1: Um, it's pretty common. I mean, it's it's a simpler sort of audible structure than just kind of giving the quarterback sort of you know, free reign to change the play because you know when you have an open-ended audible structure, you've got a quarterback who knows what he's doing, but then you've got to under- hope and understand that the other 10 guys pick up the audible and run the exact same situation that they're supposed to do. They make yep. the right adjustments and the right reads. Yep. Here, all 11 players get to the line of scrimmage and they know it's either play A or play B. So when the play is changed using the kill call – it's not so much that the you know the wide receiver that's split out to the left now has to realize okay well what's this audible mean it's just oh okay now I'm running four verticals instead of just running this guy off he's basically might be doing the same exact thing but now he knows that he might have a pass thrown his way it's not you know quarterback caused the outside zone run in the huddle then he gets up and checks out of that into four verticals. It's the same sort of play A to play B, but now there's a little bit more of a thought process that has to go into it.
0: And I'm guessing the teams also have dummy calls so that you know they'll fake like they're doing a kill call just to show something to a defense that you know they may not
1: actually be changing the play. Oh, of course, and I believe that that's what you know the infamous Omaha call was from Peyton Manning in the past few seasons. That was sometimes it was their dummy call where he would get of the line of scrimmage, call Omaha defense thinks, oh wait, you know we're in blitz posture here. Some you know strong safety's down in the box. He's in blitz posture, he's going to blitz, and now he's like, oh, wait a second, What, uh, what should, should I, and then the ball is snapped, and you've got one defender thinking, maybe you get a couple of defenders thinking you can take advantage of that. So it, it seems,
0: and it's, how, how does an offense, and look, I know that every offense has different things for all of these, but in general, how many, you know, how many different calls do you have that you have to make at the line of scrimmage that you know about? It, it seems like it would almost be confusing for the offense sometimes when I'm looking at
1: this. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, I mean, if, if you go into a situation and you just take this sort of kill call example to the max, all right? So you've got two plays called in the huddle. You get up there, you might have the safe call, Omaha, which is, you know, we're going to run this, or oh, the fake dummy call, Omaha, we're still going to run the, you know, the, the first play we called. You could have the kill call used. You could have a situation where you have a pause adjustment where you see an uncovered slot receiver, and, you know, he's got nobody within eight yards of him, 10 yards of him, just, you know, delay the cadence, take the snap, throw them the one-step smoke route. You might have a sight adjustment where you see guys that are rolled up in press coverage, you've got a chance to throw a deep fade route. We'll just take that rather than trying to run either the four verticals, which takes a little longer to develop, or that outside zone play. So there are, that's just one sort of hypothetical example based on an offense that I ran in college and calls that I had to make. But you could see how the possibilities can almost spin out of control
0: yeah it seems like there's just an awful lot uh that you can do there, and I think probably I would imagine that coordinators and quarterbacks have to be a little bit careful just to make sure that it doesn't uh become overly complicated there so yeah
1: and you know just a final quick word is how to put a little bow on this. this is why context matters, and uh, you know it's something that I've talked about a lot and struggled with honestly when it comes to evaluating quarterbacks in particular because There's so many, there's like a world of possibilities on every single play, down to the fact that, and I wrote about this, you might get a play call in from the sideline with the instruction don't even look at the backside post route because they are sitting on that all day. And then the backside cornerback falls down. That backside post route is wide open, but quarterback was just told to ignore it. But we don't know that just watching the film on tape. So, it's, it's a hard position to play. It's a hard position to evaluate. So there's, again, my quick spiel on evaluating quarterbacks. I'll shut up now. Get off my lawn.
0: <laughs> no doubt about it. Mark, we are uh, just about out of time for the day, though. About uh, quickest 40 minutes I think we've ever done.
1: We packed a lot into that show, including some anatomy lessons, some speed to power talk, kill calls, punter discussions packed a lot in my friends that's what we do
0: we got it all if you're not uh, if you don't like something in the show you're probably not listening hard enough or you're not a football fan we're back at it with our regular quick kick show tomorrow i believe we have brian perez from draft breakdown who's going to be on that talking about some of the things they have done recently pretty excited about that as always make sure that you like us on facebook follow us on twitter that is the first time i've ever gotten that right the first uh, attempt i have made there And as always, check us out at InsideThePylon.com. We have great content out every day. For Chuck Zada and Mark Schofield, we'll see you tomorrow.